Good morning everybody at Hebron Evangelical Church in Aberdeen. This is take 27 of my online sermon. Uh, give me face-to-face -face preaching any day of the week. Uh, most of you will remember me, uh, but I guess by now there's quite a few of you who are wondering who I am. That's quite all right. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Ryan McKernan, and I was a member at Hebron for several years. And I was blessed with the opportunity to come to Bible College. So I've been down here in the central belt of Scotland uh, for the last few years with my wife Claire and my two children, Micaiah and Malachi. Now we want to say a massive thank you um, to you guys because our time down here has been made possible in part by your many prayers for us and your loving kindness towards us uh, during some uh, very difficult times, I, I must add. Uh, so we're very grateful and we really do appreciate all that you've done for us. Um, now, it's my pleasure, it's my honour to be here this morning to, to give this sermon. I, I really wish I could have been in Aberdeen in person and been able to fellowship with you. But alas, the, the circumstances we find ourselves in with this uh, virus, uh, it doesn't look like that's going to be possible for at least the foreseeable future. But I know one day uh, I'll be able to do that. Um, but as my prayer is, is that uh, this uh, sermon this morning, in some way, well, some way will be a blessing to you as you have been uh, to me and my family. Now, I know last week that Ian spoke on the triumphal entry, and next week it will be the resurrection on Easter. So today uh, it could only be the crucifixion. That's the subject I've been given. And deciding exactly which elements of the crucifixion to speak on, <clears throat> I have to say, uh, not an easy decision. Um, there are several ways that uh, we can approach it. Uh, we could, for example, focus on the sayings of Christ from the cross. Uh, we could uncover the many profound prophecies uh, which give exquisite detail of Christ's sufferings hundreds of years uh, before they occurred. Or we could do an eclectic sort of broad sweep of the four Gospels. However, I've opted uh, to keep things simple and I've settled upon uh, just doing a slow walk through Matthew's account in chapter 27. Now friends, I know that uh, many are uncertain as to what lies ahead for us. We're in very uncharted territory and uh, we're uncertain to what lies ahead for us and our loved ones, but not only. Uh, but those who we work beside, those who live in our streets, in our towns and cities, indeed across the world, as we deal with this plague, as it were, uh, COVID-19. But what better thing to do at a difficult time like this than to fix our eyes firmly upon our Lord and Saviour, who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, if you have Matthew's Gospel open at chapter 27, I know that you will have read from verses uh, 32 to 56, but I'll focus mainly on the latter half of that passage, in particular verses 45 to 56. Now, up until this point in the Gospel accounts, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, uh, he's been deserted by his other apostles, he's faced a fixed trial where he was beaten and accused by the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin, uh, he has been dragged before Pilate and Herod found not guilty, yet scourged, uh, 
afflicted with a crown of thorns and mocked. He has been rejected by his own people and wrongly sentenced to crucifixion by those who really ought to have embraced him. Now, as we pick the narrative up in Matthew 27:45, uh, as followers of Christ, we accept wholeheartedly that all Scripture is inspired of God and therefore it's holy. Uh, but brothers and sisters, I want to stress this morning that the verses that we're about to explore are of all Scripture most holy. We tread this morning on very holy ground and we must tread carefully, mindful to bow in reverence at the foot of the cross and ask the Lord to reveal something of what took place there in that most pivotal day of all human history, the day our Saviour was crucified as a supreme sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice for our sin on our behalf. Now, I would not dare to claim to know the depths of what took place at that time on the cross, like many far better men before me, far more learned men than me, I fumble to draw something of meaning that sufficiently honours what actually took place on the cross. Uh, I'm going to approach it by making two points this morning. The first is uh, Christ abandoned, and the second is uh, Christ accomplished. So let's look at our, our first point. Please uh, read through with me at verse 45 of Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Now, in our understanding, that time frame is three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Now, the cause of the darkness has been a point of debate over the centuries. Was it a solar eclipse? Was it storm clouds? Was it a sandstorm? Or was it something else? Now, there's no mention of storms of any kind in the scripture. And there are good arguments against the notion of a solar eclipse based on, one, the three-hour duration of the darkness, uh, and two, the, the time of year. The crucifixion happened around the Passover, and the Passover occurs on the new moon. However, even if it were a solar eclipse, uh, the timing of God was impeccable. It began precisely when Jesus uh, was crucified and ended when he died. If you ask me, that is rather exquisite timing. Either God timed an eclipse to absolute perfection or he caused the darkness through some other means at his sovereign disposal. A better question to ask is what is the significance of the darkness that covered the land? Did it fulfil prophecy? Did it mark the occasion for the benefit of those present? Those perpetrators and mockers, the religious leaders? Those participants, the Romans? Those followers who looked on in anguish? Was it to amplify the sufferings of Christ? To enlarge his sense of abandonment, that gulf of separation between himself and his heavenly Father? Maybe all of these things, friends. In God's providence, all things are possible at once. 
And most certainly, it would amplify Christ's sufferings. The, the very next verse suggests so. Read with me verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now there's much, much written about these words from Christ. Uh, considering his many sufferings, scholars throughout history have tried to convey something of the severity of both the physical and emotional agonies that Christ suffered during his passion. They have studied and written extensively on the physiological toll of the violence he suffered. The cumulative effect of these afflictions together have all been described in great medical detail. Christ suffered physically to a degree that most of humanity uh, have never or will never experience. There is also the non-physical violence that he suffered, the betrayal, uh, the desertion, the constant conspiracy against him, the hatred, the mockery. Now these are far beyond what most of us have suffered in our lifetime. But friends, agonising and harrowing as Christ's physical and emotional afflictions were, they were in fact the smaller part. These sufferings were inflicted by men. There are two elements of Christ's sufferings that make those horrors pale into insignificance. They were inflicted upon him by his Father in heaven. And it's of utmost importance that we grasp them. The first is this. You see, the judgment that fallen humanity has to face, and we are all fallen, is for sin. For Christ to become the substitution for sin on our behalf, he willingly took upon himself our sin. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, it is a deeply profound thing to contemplate. Jesus came to be our sin-bearer. That perfectly sinless and righteous God would lower himself uh, to lower himself to become the very sin that separated us from him. Now that alone is unfathomable. But to imagine that he did it to save us who sinned against him is even further out of reach. But we know this much. It involves a loved a love that isn't found in the fallen human heart. For God so loved the world. God is love. Secondly, part of the penalty for sin is that fallen, rebellious, unforgiving, Christ-rejecting human beings deserve to be eternally separated from God. In our sins, we would be forever unable to continue in the blessing and glory of God's holy and loving presence. Instead, we would deserve to be consigned to an eternity where we have awareness of God's holy presence, but burn in agony over our own uncleanness before him. An eternity where we would have an awareness of his love 
for us, yet burn in anguish over our repeated, continual rejection of him, our self-inflicted separation from him. As rebellious sinners, that's what we deserve, friends. Jesus, on the other hand, had spent eternity in the presence of his Father, basking in glory and love. Uh, A love declared by his Father. Remember when John the Baptist reluctantly baptised his Saviour? A voice cried out from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That beloved, sinless, eternal Son would now suffer abandonment from his eternal Father, that separation that you and I deserve. Why? So that we might be reconciled to him. God the Son, abandoned by God the Father. It was the prospect of these things, brothers and sisters, that caused Jesus to tremble in Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, It was over this pivotal moment of his eternal existence that he trembled before his heavenly Father. As Jesus pleaded three times with his Father in Gethsemane for the eternal plan to be altered. Uh, And as was said last week, Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But he cried out in Gethsemane, My Father, If it be at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Three times he pleaded. But though he agonised at the mere thought of it, he ultimately submitted himself to his Father's will, to that eternal plan. Is it any wonder Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the words of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, God forsaken by God. Who can understand that? So friends, we deserve to be abandoned by God because of our sinful rebellion. But because Christ became that sin on our behalf, he himself suffered that abandonment. Let's read on. Look at verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling on Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. You see, there was an understanding among the Jews, perhaps from the words of Malachi chapter 4, that Elijah was going to return and draw the faithful to God before he poured out his wrath. It seems when he cried out the words, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthani, some bystanders thought that Jesus was calling on Elijah, prompting one of them to take action. Perhaps this bystander uh, acted in self-preservation, thinking it prudent to be seen helping this victim on the cross, whom Elijah might come to rescue. And that's all I'll say about that aspect, friends. Now that we have covered this abandoned aspect that Christ suffered on our behalf, let's consider 
our next point. What did his sufferings accomplish? Uh, so read with me verse 50 of our passage. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. <clears throat> now according to historians, death by crucifixion could take up to three days as the life of the person slowly ebbed away as they suffered more and more. Now John 19, 32 and 33 explains that the Roman soldiers had to break the legs of the thieves at either side of Jesus to speed up their demise. But they didn't need to break the legs of Jesus because he was already dead. John also records uh, the water and the blood separating as it flowed from his side when he was speared, uh, this presenting further evidence of Christ's death. Now Mark's account says that Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was dead so soon. And Luke uh, records the final words of Jesus as, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now all this to say, uh, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, the, the second person of the triune Godhead, the creator of the universe, didn't have his life taken from him. He willingly gave it up. Why? As John records, Jesus said, it is finished. Or in other translations, uh, it is accomplished. The sacrificial work uh, for salvation Christ came to perform was finally accomplished. But how exactly did this accomplishment work? Read with me from verse 51 to 53. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now I'll say that the grammar in verse 51 to 53 makes it difficult to know for certain which events pertain to the precise moment following Christ's death and which pertain to the period following his resurrection. Now, it seems that the moment Jesus died, uh, uh, the curtain of the temple immediately uh, tore in two, and there was an earthquake that caused the tombs to open. Now, as for those saints that had fallen asleep uh, being raised, it makes more sense that this happened after the resurrection. We know from Colossians 1.18 that Jesus is described as the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. But what significance does the tearing of the temple curtain have? Now on the face of it, that event can seem a little bit obscure in the midst of everything else that's going on the supernatural darkness, uh, the earthquake, uh, the saints rising from the dead. But friends, the, the curtain tearing in two is of utmost significance. You see, in the temple, there was the outer court for the people. Beyond that, 
the holy place for the priests. And beyond that still, the most holy place where God's presence dwelt upon the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place of God's presence, and that only once a year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. At that time, the priest, the high priest, would sacrifice a bull to make atonement for his own sin and a goat for the sin of the people. He would burn incense and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in the Old Testament accounts, if they are to be understood correctly, uh, even if the high priest were to enter into God's presence uh, without having been cleansed of his sin uh, through this prescribed sacrifice, he would have been consumed by God's holy presence. Access into God's presence uh, for the high priest was through a huge curtain or veil. That veil divided the court of the people and the holy place of the priest from the most holy place. It represented the separation between God and humanity. And it's only when we get to Hebrews chapter 10 do we read of the significance of Christ's death and tearing the temple veil. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10 and, and verse 19. Now this is a, a beautiful passage that conveys uh, the meaning of the, the temple veil tearing in two. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, through his death on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice and substitutionary atonement for the sin of the world, Jesus became our great high priest. When the temple veil tore in two, it tore from the top to the bottom. It was an act from above. It was an act of God, not merely uh, the strange result of an earthquake. God was saying, in effect, Heaven is now open to humanity. This old covenant of repeated continual sacrifices is no more. The new covenant is now through my son's body. His body has become the new veil between God and man. He is now our great high priest and his own body is the once for all sacrifice that makes peace. For sin, my sin, your sin. Christ's supreme sacrifice has made it possible for humanity to be in God's presence. And Paul tells us, not just Jewish people, all humanity, Jews and Gentiles, are accepted before God as one in Christ 
And it's through faith in Christ and repentance from sin that we can enter into that most holy place of God's presence. Why? Because through faith our sins are forgiven. Through faith in Christ our sins are forgiven. And Hebrews 10:18 says, Where there is forgiveness of these, forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. No more need for any offering for sin. It is finished. It is accomplished. But brothers and sisters, it means more than that for us. Christ faced that abandonment, that forsakenness reserved for rebels like you and I, so that we would not be forsaken. And because uh, of this, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that promise to, of God to us, the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or as Christ himself said at uh, the end of Matthew's Gospel, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Because Jesus was forsaken, you who follow him will never be forsaken. That leads me to this one final point. Uh, we've covered Christ being abandoned and we've covered what Christ accomplished. But what does that mean for us? Look at verse 54 uh, to verse uh, 55. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The Bible doesn't say any more about this centurion and his men. Did God reveal the truth to them? Did they become followers of Christ? Or were they just pagans overawed at the extraordinary events that followed this Jew's death? The important question to ask ourselves this morning is, who do I say Jesus is? Is he just a remarkable man? Is he just a good man who appeared to have many incredible events in his life? Is he just an amazing teacher or a prophet? Or is he who the Bible says he is, the Son of God? In verse 55, we see a glimpse of those who watched on with longing eyes. Those who didn't just proclaim Christ with, with words, they followed him. They ministered to him. Because they had faith in him, their lives were devoted to him. Is your life devoted to Christ, friends? Do you know him in that way this morning? Do you follow Jesus? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Can you declare uh, confidently, God will never leave me nor forsake me because I belong to Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Is your old life crucified with Christ? Is the life that you now live lived through Christ? Does your life reflect that of a follower? Can you say in these difficult circumstances we find ourselves in today, no matter what happens, coronavirus or otherwise, I will be in glory with Christ in eternity. There's no other way, friends. Christ was abandoned so that you wouldn't be. But you must believe in him. You must follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you uh, for your precious eternal word. Lord, if we're honest, it's a word that we we, we fail to fully grasp because we're, we're, we're merely humans. But we thank you, Lord, for that which you've revealed to us uh, this morning. Lord, uh, our prayer is, is that we, through this um, understanding of what Christ suffered, Lord, we would uh, draw close to you and we would, Lord, afresh uh, ask you to take our lives and make them more useful for your kingdom. Help us to be, Lord, people who don't just confess Christ as our Lord and Saviour, but help us to be those who follow him so that we can be witnesses in this fallen world. And Lord, for anybody listening today who has never come under conviction of their own sin, never understood their need for Jesus, Lord, would you make today that day? Would you build your kingdom? Would you add to your church more this morning? We ask it, Lord, for your glory, and we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you. Goodbye.